When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today it's Wednesday, 22nd of December, 2021. I'm Alf, the author of the Macro Compass, and I'm here with the one and only Darius Dale, which is the CEO and founder of 42 Macro. Hi Darius, how are you doing? Alf, what's up, man? How you doing, brother? Yeah, it's uh, okay here. We're in lockdown here in the Netherlands, so could be oh, better than oh. that, but... Lockdown from the seasonal cold. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know, over here, basically, they uh, close down all non-essential shops. So if you want to go to the restaurant, sorry, you can't. If you're going to do sport indoor, you can't. The uh, Omicron situation has complicated things for the healthcare sector in the Netherlands. So they were pretty late with boosters shopped and compared to the rest of Europe. And unfortunately, the situation got out of hand. So they just decided to tighten in, uh, which is very unfortunate as festivities are coming. But I guess uh, we can't get around it. Quick question. Are, are they making a distinction between uh, the, the ongoing Delta wave and the Omicron wave adding to that? Or are they saying, hey, look, COVID is COVID. We don't care. Well, they first started tightening in on the upside of the Delta wave itself. And then when Omicron came on top, they just said, OK, well, if you look at the projections of ICU hospitals, we're not doing good. Uh, the interesting part is that if you look at the intake of Omicron patients in the ICU, it's uh, not extremely large, and especially the recovery period of these patients out of the ICU seems to be much faster than it was with uh, previous waves. So people take uh, generally like only 20% of the time they took in previous waves to get out of ICU. So apparently the symptoms are a bit milder than, than they were before. Yeah, well, not only 20% of the time, but it's only 20% of the hospitalizations if you look at the South Africa study data that was published this morning. So. Um, you know, I think that's a lot of what's driven the market higher. Um, this is sort of growing realization that Omicron could actually be a, a blessing in disguise in terms of advancing society forward and out of the pandemic state phase of this whole process. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. I also try to look up a, a bit for the data of, of booster shots, which clearly can help in the process of getting this immunity back in. We have a chart we pulled up here. And I sort of tried to plot large European countries in the US. And this chart shows the percentage of population which has already gotten a third shot for COVID. And what it's really impressive is the sort of the shape of the, of the curve in, in European countries. They've really accelerated this campaign, as you can see. So it's already yeah. like in Germany, for example, 35% of population has already got the third shot. And they announced that they're probably going to be able to do 60% of population by end of January. So once you have sort of done that, I guess, you can more confidently reopen already in February. And the market seems to cherish this, this aspect today. Yeah, well, the one thing I'll piggyback on that, I, I saw some data from Johns Hopkins suggesting that the booster shot itself may only be get, uh, good for a couple months of, um, of immunity with respect to this, this variant. So... I mean, it's, it's going to be a fit and start process, but ultimately where society has to go is to something I've been saying for nine months now, which is this is an endemic. Treat it like the seasonal flu and move on. Um, I think Omicron may be, in fact, be the catalyst for that, but we shall see. Yeah, indeed. What's really important here is this dichotomy between short-term 
you know, negative impact on growth that we are going to see already. We are seeing in some data coming in, but probably in January and February data, we might see some second round effects. But you and I were chatting offline, trying to really learn from each other and understand what, what, what is this economy looking like in 2022? Are we going to above GDP, uh, sorry, above potential trend GDP, or are we just growing at, at trend GDP next year? I mean, how do you see that? Yeah, no, so I think that's the, the consensus expectation is very much that we are going to still be comfortably above trend uh, from a growth expectation. So for example, uh, in the US in particular, uh, Bloomberg consensus expectations for real GDP growth for next year, 3.9%. Um, the five-year trend through 2019 is somewhere around 2.2%, two and a quarter. And so, you know, that's obviously comfortably north of that. It's the same with the Europe as well. If you look at the Eurozone uh, expectations uh, for 4.2% 4, 4 uh, GDP, the five-year trend through 2019, 0.9%. And then the same for the gold, 4.3% expectation, five-year trend through 2019, 1.1%. So the economist consensus, and I would argue, you know, the economist consensus forecast certainly feed into uh, you know, certainly sales side uh, expectations for earnings and things of that nature. You know, the street is already there in terms of reopening this economy into something that's a boom economy. But the reality is, I think the big question for investors is whether or not that's true. Uh, we've done a lot. We're starting to do a lot of work on kind of the, the, the unpacking that debate, if you will. Yeah. And the interesting part is that if you look at some part of the, bond of, of the market, they don't seem to sort of believe this narrative too much. I mean, um, if you look at the bond market and what's priced in uh, compared to what the, the Fed dot plot is pricing in, and especially if you look at more like the terminal rate, so the long-term trends and how sustainable this growth path is, I mean, look, you know, like forward uh, swaps or uh, uh, forward Fed funds futures are pricing like a hiking cycle to stop at one and a half percent, maybe one seventy-five percent, and the Fed, the Fed is telling you, I don't know, terminal rate is two and a half percent, and we're gonna get there. So, you know, the bond market seems to be a bit hesitant to price in this sustainable above trend growth, while economist consensus, as you said, seems to be pretty optimistic. So where is the truth, actually? Yeah. And so here, this is, uh, it's to be determined. Uh, we put some together some analysis for you guys in terms of, uh, you know, trying to get to that truth. So one thing I'll start by saying is one, the Fed is also very much um, in the camp that growth will be comfortably above trend next year. So um, you have economist consensus, Fed consensus, and I would argue sell-side consensus as it relates to consensus earnings expectations are all on one side of the boat. So the risk, according to the bond market, is that that, that expectation is, is, is ultimately proved to be false. And so the first analysis I wanted to show um, is sort of the goods consumption trend relative to the services consumption trend. Because clearly there's this sort of expectation that once the economy fully reopens, we're going to have this big lurching forward of consumption of services consumption demand relative to good consumption demand that keeps the economy uh, from slowing to a below trend growth rate. Uh, but when you actually do the math on it from a real goods consumption perspective, uh, the, we're, we're, we're 538 billion north of where the trend line is through 2019, the five-year trend line through 2019. From services consumption, we are 359 billion south of that trend line. So that's a net minus $180 billion in terms of the, 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 the deviation from trends we're likely to see from the goods and services side of the economy. So how do we fill that hole, right? You know, that's kind of question number one that I think the bond market is wrestling with. And then question number two, um, if you look at the GDP trend versus the fiscal balance, another chart I sent, you know, you look at the, you know, so GDP is, you know, obviously, you know, still kind of in its in its uh, below trend, um, the output gap or technically is, is technically not necessarily fully closed. But then when you look at the fiscal balance, 
we are six percentage points below trend in terms of the U.S. fiscal balance, in terms of where we are. You know, and there's no there's not a ton of new laws. Obviously, we're learning from from Senator Manchin this this past you know few days. There's not a ton of new law that suggests we got to stay down there. You know, we could actually have a pretty sharp and meaningful fiscal contraction that takes place over the course of fiscal 22 and maybe into the early part of fiscal 23 that actually stymies that process of sort of, um, you know, kind of return that actually accelerates the process of growth returning back to trends. So that to me is all on the negative side of the ledger. On the positive side of the ledger, and this is the number one pushback uh, when I even just have this discussion with institutional clients, which is, you know, there's a ton of cash on the sideline. Um, and that is very true. If you look at household net worth, um, obviously household net worth is, is comfortably above trend um, to the tune of about 18 trillion in terms of overall aggregate net worth, but there's a ton of cash on the sidelines as well. And so you look at um, the household cash, um, it's right around sort of 3.7 trillion. That's about 2.6 trillion relative to, uh, 2.6 trillion of a delta relative to the five-year trend uh, through 2019. So there's a lot of money on the sidelines that could potentially be put to work in the real economy, mostly as a function of savings um, from the fiscal programs that we've seen thus far. But then the last chart I'll share is you look, the bottom 50% of households by household net worth in this country, in the United States, only account for 2.3% of all that household net worth. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of mixed signals, but I tend to side with the bond market in that we're all, because the consensus is all expecting above trend growth next year, and including the Fed, the reality is anything less than that is likely to cause some market activity. Yeah, so I, I like to unpack a little bit these tons of information that you provided for our listeners. <laughs> and one of the most relevant things you said, in my opinion, is the fiscal drag or the definition of a fiscal drag, right? So, so people are, and the narrative out there is that governments are going to relentlessly keep on spending, right? And keep on printing fiscal deficits. And we have seen already with the BBB plan that yeah, maybe, you know, when inflation is already running at 6% and the projection for next year is already an above-trend economy, as yeah. a politician, you might want to maybe slow down a bit and, you know, keep your powder dry. So it's easier to sell a narrative, but the reality is that, uh, you know, politics is all about compromise at, and, and especially keeping the status quo. So pushing on, on the accelerator pedal again when the economy is already running relatively hot it's not a great risk-reward trade for a politician. It's not as easy as it might look like from the outside. And the fiscal impulse and the credit impulse is as important as the level of deficit. So in order to keep this, this above trend growth stimulating, you need to print more and more. So every year you need to accelerate the pace of fiscal deficits, which, as you pointed out, it's unlikely to happen next year. So that's the definition of a fiscal drag that we are likely going to see. And the bond market as I showed in one of my last articles at the Macro Compass, it's pretty strongly disagreeing with the Fed. I mean, there, you know, this chart we can we can try to pull up shows that, yeah, I mean, basically expectations are a full percentage point away. I mean, the bond market is telling, well, next year we do agree. If you look at the chart in there, December 22, three hikes. Yes, guys, we can sort of do that next year. We agree with you. And Great. after that, I'm sorry, but we flattened out pretty aggressively. The dotted black line is the is the FOMC median dots. And the orange line is the Fed funds future being priced by traders. They just don't believe we can go ahead with that. Yeah, no, I, I don't believe we can either. I mean, again, it's I think it's in very it's it's very difficult in the absence of you know incremental confirmation from high frequency data, which is something we certainly specialize in and being counting everything and through the lens of our nowcast models. Until you get real confirmation on the the, the magnitude, because we know the direction of travel is lower. 
you know, we're not going to grow 5% again. <laughs> it's probably lower. Um, but the reality is it's at four or is it two and a quarter, which is probably the appropriate growth rate for the economy absent all this, you know, incremental fiscal stimulus. And more importantly, um, with the addition of monetary tightening, I think we shall see is the real, real debate out there. But again, I, I want to leave everyone with this very simple point. The Fed Economist consensus, sell side consensus already expects comfortably above trend growth next year, not just in the U.S. economy, but also in the global economy, particularly in Europe as well. China is the only economy I've done this analysis for where the growth expectations are right around their trend line. And so the, the market expectation on China, if you're going to go buy something, you know, as an expectation of the pandemic being open, I'd say go buy China before you go buy anything else. Yeah, that's a very good point. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's jump back in and hear today's top analysis. As we're talking a lot about economies and forecasts, etc., I want to make this a little bit more applicable for our listeners. So um, if we look at asset classes here, and let's start first from, you know, the broad topic, S&P 500. You're looking at, you know, a very relatively broad index. Well, not that broad, still market cap weighted and skewed towards certain sectors, but what would be your view on this asset class? Is it something you want to lean long for next year or you'd rather prefer certain sectors? Do you have a target for the S&P next year? No, no, we don't do targets. I mean, I think I think that's a, <laughs> that's a sell-side activity, man. We're trying to do buy-side macro for our buy-side clients. Uh, no, the reality is it's for us, it's all about sector and style factor dispersion. That's the name of the game on the buy-side. That's the name of the game of what we try to do uh, here at 42 Macro. And so uh, from an asset allocation, from a portfolio construction perspective, Let's start with the asset allocation perspective. You probably want to be long less equities than you were in 2021. You probably want to be more long, longer, more bonds than you were throughout 2021. And again, we made all these calls going back to November of, of 2020, you know, in terms of shorting the bond market, getting extremely long, high beta stocks and things of that nature. So uh, we have some chops on this, but now we're on the wrong side of the cycle in terms of the rate of change cycle for growth, the rate of change cycle for inflation. And obviously we're talking about a dual fiscal monetary policy tightening. So you add all those factors and variables together and you wind up with wanting to be in low beta securities. You want to be in the rust, the REITs, the utilities, the staples of the world. Um, you know, healthcare obviously is, a, is one of those um, uh, sectors as well. But then you start, to, it starts to run pretty thin in the equity market um, in terms of the types of sectors and style factors you're going to want to be long. But again, you're just going to want to generally be a lot less longer of equity risk because the reality is in an environment where growth and inflation are slowing, potentially to a to a uh, at trend or below trend uh, level, even if it slows to at trend, you're going to have a massive de- uh, downside surprise to consensus expectations. You're talking about 150, 175 basis points in one calendar year. That's going to cause some problems in asset markets. Um, so if we slow to just slow to where people already expect it to, you're talking about earnings growth being really the only driver of equity markets because you're probably going to lose the multiple expansion. So you're, it's going to be a tough slog, it can be a much more volatile slog as well. Uh, to the extent that the growth expectation just does not come to fruition. So How about yourself? What are you guys thinking? <laughs> so that's good. So the interesting part is that our view is relatively similar. Um, I think that there is a window going into next year where 
there are some chances still, still to be long. I do agree with you that it's rather a low beta than a high beta long in the equity market. I am also very wary of um, valuations, and we can talk about that later, but I just wanted to uh, first draw the attention of our listeners to the fact that I've interviewed, uh, and the, the, the interview is going to be aired tomorrow, uh, a new joiner uh, to the to the show at Real Vision, which is Andy Constant. You might have known him from, from Twitter, at Damp Spring is his uh, Twitter handle. Andy, great wealth of experience trading for large shops in America. And I asked him what's his target for S&P 500. So let's listen in for a second of what he said. So I don't like targets. I okay. know for a fact that between now and 2022, I will be max short equities at some point. Sure. My... I have a very simple thing. I am long. So I put targets out because people seem to like them. My current target is um, 5,000 for the S&P by, um, by the end of the first quarter. Um, and more relevantly, I've got the 4,800, 5,000 call spread in March as my expression of my view, which I think is much better than a target and is skin in the game. And we're back. So um, you asked a question about valuations, right? I mean, we talked about earnings and we talked about above trend growth or trend growth, but valuations and the delta in valuations are also extremely important to assess uh, equity market returns, right? So if you look at you know valuations and you try to plot them against something to see if there is an explanatory variable here and there, there are a couple of things that generally make sense, and one of it is risk-free real rates. I mean, if if the interest rate adjusted for inflation, you can own by simply sitting on a relatively risk-free security like the Treasury, for example, is X. Then obviously, when you look at valuations and what do you want to be rewarded for taking risk, uh, there is going to be some sort of relationship between the two. And actually, the residual between the two is what we call the equity risk premium or a proxy for equity risk premium. Now, obviously, if the Federal Reserve is going to tighten monetary policy next year, as we think it is, on the backdrop of a slowing growth impulse and inflationary impulse, and the same is going to happen, by the way, at the European level, and we can touch upon that a little bit later, the chance that these risk-free real rates are going to remain so depressed as they are now is not that high. And if you have this sort of gentle tightening process, at least what central banks are trying to engineer, that yeah. pushes real rates up, risk-free real rates up, it's hard for stock value, the valuation side of the stock market, especially the high beta part, to remain you know, that rosy. So I tend also to steer a little bit away from that asset allocation and that sector at the moment and prefer the more conservative side of, of the equity market, but still trying to be long because we are not in mayhem yet. This is not a yeah. moment to run for the hills straight away. Yeah, totally. And our back test will definitely support exactly what you just said, which is when growth and inflation are slowing, generally you want to be in lower beta securities. That doesn't necessarily you, you want to be out of equities, out of all commodities, out of all sort of risk assets in general. It's when growth starts to slow more fast, more materially, that causes the more negative signals, more risk off type environments, higher volatility, higher covariance across different risk asset markets. So that is our, in our opinion, when does that occur? If does that occur in 2022, um, the risk of that occurring in 2022, I think starts sometime around March, April, if we're going to see that um, kind of on the other side. One, that's what our model is already projecting, but two, that will conveniently be on the other side of any sort of, you know, post Omicron lockdown, you know, will be well on the other side of any sort of reopening associated with that. So you know, once we get into that interval, which is something we've been saying, hey, look, when we're in that particular moment where growth will start to accelerate to the downside, 
we have to observe the sequential momentum in that time period because it starts to look like we actually are going to back to trend growth. That's going to be a problem for asset markets. If it looks like we're just going to have this comfortable decay function, you know, back to 4% growth in 2022 and then finally trend growth in 2023, I think markets can digest that fairly well. But to your point, uh, bringing up one last chart, which is uh, the world, we showed this uh, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago in our macro uh, in our macro minute videos, which is the world composite leading index time series relative to high beta risk assets. Uh, the blue line is the composite leading index time series. The black line in the chart is the S&P 500 high beta ratio or high beta index relative to the low beta index on a ratio basis. And then the red line in the chart is Bitcoin relative to treasury bond prices. And as you can see, when that line, that blue line peaks, as it is peaking now, you tend to have dramatic drawdowns, dramatic with a capital D, drawdowns in, in high beta securities, high beta assets, things like Bitcoin, not only relative to low beta securities within their own market, but also relative to bonds and cash and things of that nature. So um, the speed of that, pro we think that process is ongoing and it's going to continue. It's just the speed of that process in terms of how painful it will feel will really depend on this sort of unanswered question on kind of the, the terminal rate of growth next year. Yeah, and the other important headline we got a few days ago um, is basically from the first Fed speakers talking about what to do with the balance sheet. Because we talk about hiking and we talk about, you know, tapering and how many hikes, but the real elephant in the room is what's going to happen to the balance sheet uh, of central banks. And the first headlines are coming out. I mean, Powell at the FOMC presser basically said, yeah, of course, we're looking at it, but it's too early to discuss and uh, we're going to make a decision. Then you start getting the first headlines by FOMC members. They say, yeah, well, we might want to reduce the balance sheet. I mean, it's ex the, the amount of excess reserves in the system is incredibly large. Yeah. So we might want to experiment at starting reducing that. Actually, uh, I've run an analysis on Europe because we tend to talk a lot about the Fed, but the ECB has basically announced that the cheap funding facilities for European banks, they're called TLTRO, will yep. not will stop to be so advantageous basically for banks from next year. So there is a very high likelihood that those facilities are going to start to be paid back because banks want to avoid funding cliffs. They don't want to you know, wait for 2023 where they need to repay one and a half trillion all in one go. They rather yep. smoothen the repayment profile. Oh. And when they do that and they, and they repay, the central bank balance sheet shrinks as a result. So we're talking about Europe, which is a more conservative monetary policy maker than, than the U.S. is on the hawkish side, that is more, most likely going to shrink their balance sheet in 2022. We have a chart that, that shows my, my projections. And this would be, look at this, there is the very first time since 2013 that we actually see a meaningful sh shrinking of the ECB balance sheet according to my projections. Now, yeah. try to add the Fed on top. What do you think of these balance sheet dynamics? Do you think there's something we should really be aware of? How, shall, how should we read that? I think so. I, that phenomenal analysis. Uh, who was the, the, the gentleman you said at the Fed who sort of floated this trial balloon? I think it was Waller, probably. Waller, Waller. Oh, yeah, gotcha. So maybe let's put Waller in the category of Buller, Bullard in, let's call it, May. Because you know, Buller was kind of first first one out there with this inflation narrative and maybe having to pivot out of transitory. And so now it's December and maybe six months from now, the whole you know FOMC board will be talking about balance sheet reduction, maybe yeah, as a function of inflation staying comfortably above their targets for longer than they currently anticipate. Who knows? I don't think that balance sheet tightening is on the menu, certainly not in the near term. And the reason I say that is because of what we talked about last week. Remember the market, had the, the, the equity markets, commodity markets had a very positive response. Uh, to the Fed, to Powell's press conference. And the reason, in our opinion, 
or in my opinion, I think they had such a positive response because Powell said, hey, look, in response to a question, we're not on this preset course to tightening. We understand that the, the, financial, the financial conditions tightening has a much sort of shorter lag with respect to its impact to the economy than traditional monetary policy functions. And so they understand, they basically learned a lesson from 2018. And so I think 2018 was a year where we saw a tremendous amount of uh, balance sheet tightening, quantitative tightening um, out of the Fed. And, and clearly it created some, some real consternation. We had a 10% drawdown in the early 2018 with Balmageddon. We had a 20% drawdown, obviously, in Q418 that culminated with the Christmas massacre. So I think that's fresh in Powell's memory. Certainly it's tough, rocky first, uh, first year on the job. But the reality is um, if they get anywhere, if this becomes an issue, you know, they might it, it might become an issue faster than they actually want it to be. And the reason I say that is because the how we calculate net liquidity, at least here in the U.S., because we get we have the appropriate data and you know, we look at the Fed's balance sheet minus the Treasury General account. Um, obviously, when the Treasury General account's going down, you tend to get additional um, impulsive liquidity and, and not vice versa. And so, you know, we know the Treasury General account's going up. It's basically at zero right now. Um, we know it's going up as a function of the recently uh, authorized debt ceiling um um that selling sort of a hike but then we're probably going to get a fiscal 2022 reconciliation package at some point it might not be two trillion mansion saying no to that but it, you know we got to fund the gut we got to keep the government running at some point so who knows 800 billion is it 1.2 trillion that number is going to be uh in, in addition to that as well so we could have net liquidity reduction irrespective of quantitative tightening just as a function of the flat fed balance sheet and an increase in the treasury general account and that's something we would expect to start to happen by the middle of next year as well. So um, kind of all roads point to, you know, late Q1 when the market starts snipping this out. Certainly by the end of Q2, the market will have a real good sense of where are we slowing from a growth perspective in terms of the terminal destination? What's the slope of the net liquidity line? And ultimately, what's the ultimate asset market response to that? And, and again, I'll, I'll leave you with the same thing we started the conversation, which was consensus is very much long high beta asset risk assets. They're very much long an expectation of above trend growth next year. And to me, I think that there's a lot of downside risk to those to those positions. Wow, this was quite a lot. So let's sum it up because I think we said a couple of important things here, Darius. So you have basically two guys that are somehow agreeing on the fact that consensus seems to be relatively optimistic when it comes to real growth next year. Mm -hmm. Then positioning seems to be still on the high beta side of the equity market. Yep. Uh, not only, also on the high beta side in general, commodities, industrial commodities, Perfect. and all of those, crypto, and all of those. Then, Darius just told you that liquidity in the US is likely to be net negative next year because of the interaction between the Treasury General account and uh, the Federal Reserve balance sheet, basically. And I just told you that I expect the European Central Bank balance sheet to shrink as a result of repayments of TLTRO. Wow, that's that's quite a picture, guys. So oh. I just want to, I just want to pause for a second to to you know let this sink in into our our listeners. Well, let's not scare people too, though, right? Like, I mean, let's 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 well, between now and then, because again, you, you, I think what we're talking about is a second career from now. The first career we have to risk manage is potential what we've been calling for in our research is a potential for a convergence trade, mostly out of the function of the of the fact that the options market got too bearish and risk assets too soon. We're not in the point of the process where net liquidity is inflecting negative. We're not in the point of the process where growth is slowing at a more material pace. And so for risk assets to have gotten bearish as they were in options market terms, we look at skew and volatility relative to volatility risk premia, you know, that we could we should be seeing a bounce. And more importantly, we should be seeing a bounce in some of the more beaten down uh, sector style factors and things of that nature. The this Omicron deal might actually turn out to be a blessing in disguise. It could take that bounce and take it much further than you would otherwise expect. 
Um, again, this is the same bounce that was catalyzed by Powell's commentary last week. And so at the end of the day, you know, you have to be able to sort of manage risk on multiple durations. You know, I think that's one of the big issues with a lot of retail investors that, you know, we try to help, um, you know, consult in here at 42 Macro, which is, you know, they have one view. You have to be able to maintain multiple views and, and build a balanced, thoughtful portfolio construction and risk manage the views within the portfolio construction in order to survive a crazy market like this. That is so right. At the end of the day, we don't, we don't have a crystal ball. We can make assessments of what's coming. We can assign probabilities to several outcomes, and then we can manage the risk reward of different asset classes within different probabilities. I mean, we, we just don't know exactly what's going to happen. And anybody who tells you it's 100% going to be like that, you've got to be 100% long this asset without any hedge and without any consideration of interaction within your, your portfolio uh, in terms of asset classes correlation, it doesn't really work like that. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's jump back in and hear today's top analysis. We have a couple of questions from the audience that I think we should try to cover because these guys have been kind enough to listen to us rant <laughs> for about 30 minutes and they even have a question for us. So the first one is, um, what do you think about the yield curve even inverting in two stands or five thirties in the US? And then they say, if, uh, if my early recommendation in flatteners that I put on in summer this year is still valid. But first, two stands, five thirties in the US, is the yield curve even gonna invert, Darius? I think it has a risk to, but I don't think it's going to, at least not this soon. Uh, and what I mean by this soon is, you know, kind of within any reasonable forecast projection period, which in our in our nomenclature is, you know, a rolling 12-month forward period. I don't think that's a legitimate possibility. One, I don't think the Fed's going to be able to hike interest rates that fast um, without spooking the markets. But number two, I think the Fed is now incorporating the yield curve into its monetary policy setting framework. I mean, we know this, Jay Powell is as good at listening to the markets as as as, uh, as Chairman Greenspan was. And so, you know, I don't believe that if they get to the point where the yield curve is significantly more flat than it already is, I do believe they'll pump the brakes and sort of try to give themselves more. They'll they'll find a reason to pump the brakes in terms of their data dependency. Yeah, but you're so the answer to that question is that um, I treat this uh, investment idea as any other I've ever had and traded when I was trading myself uh, for the, for an institutional book. I put it on in summer, it worked, and then I used trailing uh, profit target. So I just move my profit uh, higher as the trade makes money for me, and I move also my stop loss higher. So what happened is that we went really flat in 5.30s and 2 stands, and then we had a small reversion of late. So I've effectively taken off the trade with a large profit, also because my macro view is similar to the one that Darius is saying. The Federal Reserve has shown some more nimbleness, if that is an English, an English word. They're more nimble around their hiking cycle than they, you know, they, they're not on autopilot like 2018. They seem to be a little bit more attentive. So when you get to pretty flat levels, the risk reward of being in that trade, it's not extremely appealing anymore. I think the, the, the easy, easy money has been done on the trade. And then the other question I want to ask is, um, let me see if I can find it over here. Yeah, so if deflation, if the deflation call is correct, that's a question for you, Darius. 
Should we buy growth stocks to front run it? How does that correlate with get out of high beta? Is actually growth tech stocks, let's say, uh, a way to express a deflation call? Yeah, so it's it's uh it's it, that's a great question. In terms of how we um, orchestrate our asset allocation recommendations, our portfolio construction recommendations specifically within equities, it's not just about being in one regime. So deflation is the regime where by growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously in our nomenclature. Um, you traditionally you're not going to want to be in those kinds of securities, but it's also the secondary considerations as well. You know what's the speed of the growth change? If growth is barely slowing, you're going to go buy as many high beta tech stocks as possible. Um, in terms of what our back test uh, analysis has shown. Uh, but if growth starts to slow at a more moderate to more severe pace, then you obviously don't want to be long high beta. But this one thing is consistent. Um, you don't want to be long high beta in general. And so if you're going to be long tech at all, you got to be long the boring tech of the world, the Apple, the Dell, as opposed to uh, whatever the heck Kathy Wood's long these days. Um, so that is, that is certainly um, a signal that's already been underway in financial markets. And I don't expect that signal to, uh, to, to absolve itself in a real material fashion. You might suck some people back into the trade. Don't get me wrong. This is how markets function, right? We could actually, let's, 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 let's put a pretty Tiffany bow on everything we've been talking about. How could you get a market crash next year? One, you suck everyone back into the high beta securities that they're probably already still fairly long as a function of Omicron being the blessing in disguise and the Fed not being on autopilot. And you have this nice, you know, kind of start to Q1. And then, oh, by the way, it turns out that growth's actually slowing to the trend next year. And oh, by the way, Fed's still going to be on its hiking path and maybe inflation's uh, at least at the beginning of the year, a little bit more sticky than, than we currently expect. That's, this is, I mean, this is exactly how markets function. It's never this smooth linear path. Even the stuff that you and I are talking about, you would agree, right? It's not going to be as, 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 as linear as even we're talking about it. And we're clearly talking about it in a nonlinear fashion. So I do think we have to be aware and, and keep everything on a short lease and on multiple durations in terms of these views. Yes, especially because also it's important to talk about macro, but uh, uh, macro, but micro also plays a role. So what I mean is, regulation has increased uh, several times in, in you know in in a large uh, fashion since the great financial crisis. So I used to manage money professionally till not so long ago when I you know when I started seven years ago, it was much easier to trade in size because the market makers could really absorb your flows. They had more warehousing capacity. They could take risks. They had more balance sheet. Seven years later, when I left, this was not the case anymore. Liquidity has really evaporated. The ability to take risks and absorb uh, risks from, from the market-making community is much, much you know, lower than it was in the past. And also the, the margin net and the leverage the system is built on obviously makes every um, you know, uh, hurdle in the way quite a convex payoff. It's not, it, it's not gonna be linear, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. I could 100% agree with you. If you, if we, I'm so glad you brought that up because on the list of things that could potentially sort of make everything we're talking about that's to the negative side catalyze itself in a catalyst of one in a more material way, but also potentially sooner, it's market structure. It's the ability to get out of the trades. I mean, don't think yeah. about the, the one way, the one way rocket we've been on since basically March of 2020 in terms of risk assets appreciating for the most part. Um, and obviously, you know, in terms of, you know, generally speaking, bonds going down in price. What happens when those things need to reverse? At one, at the institutional level, right? There's pension flows rebalancing, there's insurance funds, there's obviously large mutual fund rebalancing. But then what happens when all the sort of Robin Hood traders and all the, you know, guys trading, guys and gals trading crypto, you know, try to say, well, I don't know, maybe I'm long, not me. So XYZ uh, retail investor is long, I don't know, 5% of their portfolios in Solana or something like that. 
and they say, well, I no longer want it to be 5%. I don't like the chart or, you know, things in crypto don't look as, as hot. What happens when they try to take that to a 2.5% position? They're not going to be able to get out without moving the price. And this is the big issue with me. There's so many people on one side of the boat as a function of these one-way markets since the lows of 20, March 2020. And again, I, I'm glad you really brought that up because that to me is a real big risk. Again, we're not trying to spook you guys. I, I want to be very clear that we're talking about downside risk in an adult manner because we do think these things are more probable than clearly what Bloomberg consensus and the Fed consensus expects. And so that that the markets live in the kind of the realm of possibility turning into probability. And that's how you make money. Exactly. So thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, make sure you tune in tomorrow as well, because Maggie is back with uh, Jared Dillian, who's the author of the Daily Dirt Nap newsletter, which is a very fun one and a nice one. You can continue the conversation with us on the exchange in Real Vision. Uh, you, you can, of course, check out more content on Real Vision, which is, of course, great. And um, you can check out Darius at 42 Macro, of course, myself at the Macro Compass newsletter. And now we're going to, uh, before we say goodbye, uh, I would like to, of course, give the chance to Darius to say his, his last words. But after that, we're going to hear a word from Raul on uh, the pro crypto tier that has been recently launched at Real Vision. Darius. Oh, we just really quickly, uh, we uh, Real Vision published a piece I did with Leland Miller, uh, founder and CEO of China Beige Book. They're the best in terms of Chinese economic data and forecasting China. So go check that out to the extent you uh, subscribe to Real Vision. Right now, thanks, Darius, for uh, for being here again. It's been always a it's always a pleasure always. to have you on. Love these. And, uh, let's uh, let's hear a word from Raul on Pro Crypto, and guys, uh, we'll uh, we'll see you again tomorrow on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You know, I'm still totally blown away by the response to the Crypto Pro product we knew it was going to be a good one and that we all needed it i didn't realize it was going to be this big and look i'm really honored to have you as part of this journey if you're not part of it yet by december 23rd as i said in the last video is the nft option and the extra discounted early adopter pricing disappear so look if you want to be involved now's your chance because that nft gives you a say in the future of the web3 vision for real vision and that's really important to me i want the community to help us build this out and we need people like you that comes with crypto insiders and pro crypto tier so look that nft is your gateway to the future of real vision and you can help us and uh, you know i think community is the most important thing as i've been drumming home to everybody so look don't miss that chance and also don't miss the early bird pricing the early adopters you guys matter to us it's been selling like hotcakes, ridiculous. Why are we doing this and what is it? Really, what it is, is we needed a product in crypto that was a grown up, deep dive, intelligent understanding of the space. Because it's not just about charts and price action, it's about truly understanding where we can make money, how we can make money, and where the future lies. What products are great, what projects are not good, what we should avoid. The knowledge you need here is exponential, and so we need the best people in the world to do it. That's what Delphi are all about. They partnered with us to help all of you, me included, to get up to speed on what's really going on and how best to capitalize these opportunities. And really the product is like Macro Insiders, where we do it for the macro community, all of you investing in various things. And now we include crypto in that, but this is much more in depth. This is like people who really wanna know and really wanna do it. And it's the same kind of product Numerous things, deep dives, infocuses, videos, the whole suite, including discourse channels. Delphi are really putting their resources behind this. It's got 70 plus analysts. Anyway, just remember, 
December 23rd, this is your last chance. That NFT is your gateway, your golden ticket to many things that will be revealed in due course and also being part of this journey. So look, I can't wait to have you as part of this and have a fantastic Christmas, happy holidays and happy new year. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com